0: at where the wound was and dad had actually put a piece of fencing wire around the top right up in the top of his groin so he'd actually put that on and probably saved his life and he'd put it on so tight with a um, pair of pliers so that would have actually saved his life at the moment hey, is it
1: a big property? That blood
0: pressure is not
1: coming up. on, understood, Thank you. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast series about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast.
0: My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. And I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Rajri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge elders, past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be.
1: There is a delightful small Queensland community on the Capricorn Highway between Emerald and Longreach that is situated on the banks of the Jordan Creek, or the river, as it's sometimes called. Initially starting as a railway station in 1885, the community was named Jericho at that time by a railway engineer because it was the first station west of the Jordan, a reference to the biblical town of Jericho being to the west of the Jordan River. Today, Jericho has a few hundred people and is known to be a great place to fish and birdwatch because of the gentle Jordan. It also has a number of interesting and colourful murals painted by local residents, with the most popular being two Goannas having a beer. From 1991 until just September of last year, Leslie has been dedicated to the well-being of Jericho and the surrounding district as a bush nurse at the Jericho Health Clinic. She's a courageous and loving woman who was acknowledged with an Australia Day Award in 2019 and has also been nominated and won the RFDS Everyday Hero Award for her region and for the state of Queensland. G'day, Leslie. Hello, Lana. How are you? I'm good. Would you firstly tell me a little bit about Jericho and what it looks like?
0: It's a small town on the Capricorn Highway, 1,100 kilometres. Northwest of Brisbane. The town itself is only quite tiny, but it does have a huge catchment area of 13,000 square kilometres and 84 cattle properties. Main industry being beef cattle production. Apart from that, lovely scenery. Yeah, it's a really nice little place. Nice people. What do you love about living there? I don't know. It's just when I first came here, my parents or most of my family had properties here. And when I first come out here, I just felt like I belonged. I kind of had a little bit of history um, going back to Jericho because my great aunt was the first bush nurse here in Jericho. Oh, wow. She came here when the uh, polio epidemic was here And, um, and she is actually buried in the cemetery. She was killed off as a result of a horse accident while she was out checking on the children that had polio, actually not far from where we live. And my grandfather used to tell me all about what she used to do out here. So there you go. Wow. Yeah,
1: and and so what's the heritage for you and your family in that area? Have you been in that district for a long time?
0: They have been here for a very long time. Various members um, bought sheep and cattle properties out here. You know, it's like third generation is still here. A lot came from South East Queensland and came to Jericho. And
1: when did you train as a nurse originally way back?
0: Uh, I trained in Gympie uh, in the 1970s. Early 1970s. Right. Could you explain
1: what a day in the life of a remote area or bush nurse looks like? Because it it takes a pretty strong, resilient, and courageous health provider to do it alone in a small community for so long.
0: Day in the life. Well, (laughs) you never plan anything. I'll tell you that. You never plan anything. You have to be very well organised because you never know what's going to happen, what your day is going to end up being like. So, never plan anything with family or anything like that because sure as eggs, you plan it, you won't you won't get to finish it for the day. We out with some emergency. It's just one of those positions. But in saying that, the people are really lovely here. The one thing that I have found over the last few years is looking at the children. You know, like third generation, and, and looking at the the children that I vaccinated years ago are now bringing their own babies in for vaccination, and it's like, wow, where did those years go? That's lovely. It's a, a very fulfilling position. How far away is the closest hospital? 54 kilometres.
1: Right. You've seen and dealt with more than a fair share of accidents and injuries and illness over the time of your career There was one particular story, Leslie, that I was keen to yarn with you about, and that's relating to your daughter, Tammy. Would you just first set the scene for me of when this was and how old your daughter was and where she was living?
0: It happened on the Wednesday, just before Mother's Day, so around about this time of the year, 1998. So she was 23. It was six weeks before her and her fiance were going to get married she had been at our place in jericho that day and we'd been looking at the um making sure that the wedding invitations were all ready to go out and um actually hand sewing her veil to her headpiece yeah and doing all those last minute things and she said that she was going to go down and cook tea for her fiance and he was away mustering um, and she would go down and stay at his place, his property, which was outside of Alpha, and she'd be back the next day. I don't know exactly what happened except that I know she was cooking spaghetti bolognese and she walked out of the kitchen and she heard a noise and she walked and she ended up being shot with a twenty two rifle and it was a hollow-point shell. And hollow-point shells, what they do is they fragment. So it's like a whole heap of uh, shrapnel. In one way, she was lucky um, because it, where she was shot was just above the um, belly button, umbilical area at point-blank range, so it went straight in. So it missed her aorta and it missed her spinal her spinal cord. It actually took out all the fragments, took out her both lungs her um pancreas her um da- it damaged her liver large bowel and a small bowel and a stomach and a spleen
1: oh my gosh so this was something she wasn't expecting obviously had she disturbed an intruder or an intruder had been disturbed
0: she heard a noise she and she thought it was a fiance come home and she walked out of the kitchen through the dining room and was going out onto the front veranda It must have happened around about half past six, seven o'clock, maybe a little later than that because we got the call at 8.40 um, that she was at Alpha Hospital.
1: So it was an intruder and it was a person who shot her at point blank range. She's alone on this property in a remote part of Queensland. Who discovered her? Who found her? I presume or did she manage to make a call for help?
0: No, no. She was found by her fiancé lying face down on the cold floor. Oh, my God. And it was really, really cold at the time, and the specialist and the doctor said that probably saved her life because she had actually pressure on the wound from the hard floor, and and it was lino, so it would have been really cold and hard pressing up against her stomach. He found her, he rang the hospital alpha hospital straight away and they um sent an ambulance oh my god we got the phone call to say that what had happened she, they didn't say exactly what had happened and they said that they'd organized for the police in jericho to bring us to the hospital as the has the
1: intruder already i presume they didn't stick around they obviously just gone they're gone yeah. so you get the call You head off and and Alpha is, you said, about 50 kilometres away?
0: We get the call. It's 54 kilometres from our place to Alpha. By the time we got to Alpha Hospital, she was in emergency. She was semi-conscious. She still had her boots on. She always wore boots with the laces in, you know, the high-top Ariat boots. Yeah. And um, they took me into emergency to her. They were doing all types of things and... um, I took her boots off for her, unlaced them and took them off for her and I lifted up her um, – she had a coat on too – and lifted up and I seen the um, the residue from the gunpowder around the wound on a valley and thought, oh, well, that's point blank. You see, it's not long before that that I had been to Toowoomba to do a course on um, gunshot wounds. Oh, wow. Um, you know, first aid treatment. So – a bit ironical, actually. Yeah. At first, I thought when they, when the police told me that she'd been shot, I thought, if she's been shot in the head, I was just, you know, when I seen the wound on the stomach, I thought, oh God, you know, there'll be heaps of damage there, but I didn't know that it was a hollow point and how bad it would actually be. They asked me if I'd help and I said I would. So I put down a nasogastric tube for them. Um, and I was talking to Temmie as I was doing it and just reassuring her. And then I sucked back on the nasogastric tube and I drew frank blood and I thought, no, shit, this is not good. This isn't good. With that, um, RFDS were just about there. They came and they um, did everything that they needed to do to sort of stabilise her and get her ready for a flight. They told me to go with them, so I went with them and I sat up in the front with the pilot and we flew to Rockhampton, and we got to Rockhampton. She wasn't doing very well. She had a lot of internal bleeding, and I looked at her face, and she was really, really pale, and her lips were – you couldn't even see the outline of her lips, and with that she arrested. But the nurse nurses that were with her were so good, they um, managed to bring her straight back. That was on the Wednesday night. So from Wednesday night till – Saturday morning, she went to theatre four times to try and stop the bleeding. Her liver was the main thing that they couldn't stop the bleeding with. On Friday afternoon, the doctors came to me and said she was in intensive care and they said that her uh, organs were starting to shut down and that they didn't think that they could do anything more to help And She was too weak to fly to Brisbane and I begged them to don't give up on her.
1: As I mentioned earlier, this podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia. Having reliable vehicles is imperative in the harsh Australian outback, and Isuzu have provided D-MAX utes and MUX SUVs to pull seven large RFDS flight simulators as they engage in school, community, and field day activities for the Royal Flying Doctor Service. These simulators are full-size planes minus the wings, and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are a perfect match for the long-distance heavy towing demands of these RFDS simulators right across Australia. So keep an eye out for them as they travel around each state, and we would love to see photos and locations on our Flying Doctor podcast community Facebook page when you see them.
0: They had a... Um, a video link with Brisbane specialist, and the um, young doctor told me that there was a, a specialist down there who said that he knew of someone who was a surgeon who was um, holidaying at Yapoon and they said they would try and get on to him anyhow they did he came to the hospital to the Rockhampton hospital and operated on her and he stopped the bleeding. Wow. Yeah so that night, the Friday night he said, she'll be okay, we'll get her to Brisbane. He came out and I never saw his face because he still had all the um, gown and the theatre cap and the mask on his face. And he just said, she's, she's he just grabbed my arm and said, she'll be all right, I'll get her to Brisbane. So um, that night there was a big storm but um, RFDS flew her from Rockhampton straight through to Brisbane and I squashed into that plane up, up the front somewhere and um, we got to Brisbane and they put her into intensive care. She was in the bed one, right as you go through the door on your right, straight across from the reception desk. Now, she went to theatre again twice when she got down there and that was Mother's Day on Sunday morning. So she was, she was stable. She was obviously unconscious and had all these lines, in her, and I think they told me she had something like 30-something 30, 30 units of blood. Wow. The nurses were just lovely and the doctors, and they said to me, go and have a sleep.
1: Yeah, I, I, I was
0: going to say, I bet you hadn't slept for like four or five days. No, I, I hadn't, and I was starting to feel really lightheaded. They were so good down there in Brisbane. They were good everywhere, actually. Oh, one of the, um, you know, those safety people, you call them, the... I anyhow, he all came up, all dressed in all his stuff and he escorted me over to these, this little unit and he told me to sleep there for the night and he'd be doing rounds and not to leave there in the morning and I had to press this particular buzzer and someone would come and get me and um, take me back up to intensive care. The next morning I went up there and it was about 6 o'clock. i showered and got dressed and I went up and I walked up the hallway and they escorted me to the lift and I went up and I could see the nurse that was looking after Tammy. She was sitting on, they call them a cow, oh. you know, those <laughs> yeah. computers on wheels. And she was sitting on at that at the end of the bed. And I could see, um, Tammy wasn't moving or anything, but I could see all these lines and machines and everything. And um, they have these big clear rubber doors to go into intensive care. And she seen me coming and she and she pushed the door open and she came out to me. And I just stood there and I thought, oh, what type of news am I going to get this morning? And she said, happy Mother's Day. I said, really? She said, yeah. She said, she's stabilising. It was the best Mother's Day present anyone could ever get. She was away nearly four months before she got shot. She was about 65 kilos. She's a big, tall girl. When she came home, She weighed, I think, 45 kilos. She was just,
1: yeah. How is she today, Leslie, having survived such a horrific injury? Has she got ongoing challenges uh, with her organs um, as a consequence of that gunshot? Or has she managed to come through okay despite all of the surgeries and everything that was required as intervention?
0: She has some challenges, but she tends to manage them one of the big things that she has is she's got a lot of shrapnel still in her body, and some pieces of shrapnel are still sitting very s- close to her spinal cord, which the um, it, um, you know the specialists and that are quite uh, concerned about. But she's doing quite well. The other thing is that she has a uh, she has to really keep barley sugar on her all the time because she gets uh, has hypoglycemic episodes. And course mm. she's very active, too, she does a lot of cutting, you know with the horses they do that, and she trains a lot of horses and because um a pancreas isn't working the way it should do after all the damage but yeah no she's she's good, she looks wonderful.
1: oh, that's amazing, what a story did she, so that this whole thing happened just six weeks before her planned wedding. did she you know four months, six months a year later uh, go through and 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 actually
0: tie the knot in the wedding that she dreamed of yes she did she waited until she she'd already had the dress and everything so she wanted to make sure that she could wear it properly because she was so thin when she came home so they waited until she and she had to kind of get her head around the whole thing as well they left that property and went elsewhere to another another district a long way away and then yes she got married about two and a half years later Oh, that's wonderful.
1: Did they ever catch the the person that shot her? No. No. Oh gosh. Somebody is walking around with a conscience that is going to send them somewhere when they die. I mean, that's just horrible. I, I'm I'm somewhat speechless. Um that's just such an intense story. And as a mother myself, I just sort of feel like i I'm in your shoes, Leslie. So so courageous, both for you and your daughter and for her then-fiancé, now-husband, gosh.
0: If it hadn't have been for RFDS, she would never have survived. They said that only 1% of the people with those injuries normally survive, so she's a very lucky girl. She
1: is a very lucky girl. There was one other story, Leslie, that I was keen to hear about that relates to your dad, um, now deceased, but back in the early 90s, very much alive and kicking, and a young bloke named Charlie, I think, they were out fencing. Yes. Would you mind explaining how that incident went down? Because that one too is uh, sort of something that you can't quite make up. No, no. What sort of day was it and what do you remember of that, of how that day began?
0: Well, I'm, I'm thinking that it must have been a Monday, I'd say, because Charlie had been to our place the night before and had dinner with us. Family members had this property and they'd sold half of it and they'd kept uh, half of it. And what they were doing was they were getting family members and other members out there to put all this type of new fencing, a new bore down, all that type of stuff, you know, new laneways, Mm -hmm. everything. And so there was a big, big work program Mm organised. I was at work. Our son was only a few months old at the time and I was still – Breastfeeding him, in my breaks, I was feeding him at lunchtime, and I got a phone call at home, and it was my father. And he said he sounded really husky on the phone. You see, at the property where it happened, which was about just over fifty kilometers north of Jericho on an all dirt road, there was no electricity. The they had a big shed there built. They had a big generator, so but they did have a landline. So he was on the landline. And he said to me, can you come quick? And I said, yes, Dad, what's the matter? And he said, the young fella. And I said, yes, Dad, what's happened? And he said, he's had his leg chewed off. I said, what? He's had his leg chewed off. And, I, and he was making these really strange noises on the phone. And I said, what's the matter with you, Dad? I didn't ask him who it was because he used to refer to my husband as the young fellow, see? <gasps> and I'm thinking, oh, God, is he still alive? He said, yes. I said, where is he? He said, he's in the back of my ute in the shed. And I said, what's the matter, Dad? He said, I've got terrible chest pain. I said, where are your angina? He said, they're in the glove box. I said, can you get them? He said, I will try. And with that, he give this almighty God a, like a groan. And and everything just stopped. It's like the big noise and obviously he collapsed and pulled the phone off the wall. So
1: hold on. So, Leslie, so you've been told there's a young fella who you think is your husband. It actually wasn't your husband, but you thought it was your husband yep. who's had his leg chewed off yep. and with no detail and that he's in the back of the ute yep. and that your dad has chest pain and has now collapsed, ripping the only phone line off the wall and leaving you fifty kilometres away, what did
0: you do? I went out into the street, and I know this sounds like something out of the west, but I had to had the baby. See, you know, I still I was still breastfeeding him. I, but I always had a really good nappy bag and everything packed just in case I got a big emergency. And I yeah. just um, grabbed him and um, raced straight out the front gate. And my sister lived across the road. As I'm going, um, I called out to her and she ran down the steps and I handed the baby to her over the fence, um, told her I have to go. I thought, well, what am I going to do for an ambulance driver because I knew that my normal ambulance driver was away for the day. I walked back across the street and I looked down towards the garage and the mechanic, he was out the front fixing up a tractor. I called out to him and I whistled to him and I said, Greg, can you come quick? Come quick, please. And he said, right and, um I raced up back up to the clinic and started to grab all my bags and everything and I grabbed a couple of bottles of SPPS um, you know that's a uh, like a blood substitute stuff that we used to use in the olden days yeah and I grabbed I grabbed that I thought I don't I don't know if we'll need it well if they're still alive so um and a couple of other bags of fluid as well more than what I already had and um, by this time he'd got the ambulance and was beside the
1: the clinic. clinic
0: waiting for me. Yep. Yeah. Opened the back door, threw all the gear in, jumped in and he said, and and we're going out of town and he said, Tell me what's happening and I told him, he said, Are you gonna be able to handle this? And I said, Well, if they're alive, I'm gonna give it a go. And he said, What can I do to help? Drive fast.
1: <laughs> Drive fast, Just drive.
0: I'm, like, I'm still thinking in my head you're 50 kilometers away. It's and on a dirt road. Ah I didn't worry about his driving because you see he's a rally driver and he's a speed car driver. It, we had an old F100 ambulance and all only vehicles that Piercy had were F-100s. Well I'll tell you what I reckon the only time we were on the road when we was when we crossed it. He was just going, <laughs> and I I got in the back and was sitting in on the um stretchers, and I was doing up lines, and I thought, okay, let's do up two lines, let's get everything ready, so I can just go bang bang bang, hook up two oxygen cylinders because I you know I won't be able to get the ambulance in there, I'll have to drag everything out. Oh, uh, before I left too, I also rang Alpha Hospital and told them I need backup, hurry, don't. Muck around, and I also rang the police because I thought I've got no phone out there. There's no. I probably won't be able to get any two-way at all. Yeah. But the police have usually got a really good system in their car, and they can pick, pick usually pick up the two ways. Mm. And so I rang the police, and there was a lady policeman who was relieving in Jericho. Well, she came out a bit after us, but she couldn't get any any um any signals at all either. So we were just like, pardon the French, fine by the arse of our pants. That's basically what it was. Yeah. I mean, did you You didn't get any detail from your dad, did you, other than no.
1: the young fellas had his leg chewed off? I mean, what were you thinking? I mean, there's not giant kangaroos out there. Did you have any idea what he was referring to?
0: I knew that they were fancy, but I didn't expect to see what I saw. I knew that it would have to be something to do with the tractor act incident and and wire. I didn't really know anything else. As you pulled
1: up, what what did you see? Did
0: you, was your dad visible when you arrived? Like the shed only had three sides to it. So we drove in and you could sort of see right into the shed and he'd parked his um, little Subaru ute inside the shed. I could see straight in there and then I saw dad collapsed at the wall beside where the phone was, and the phone was, you know, lying on the on the ground. Oh, my gosh. So um, I raced over, and I felt Dad's pulse, and he still had a pulse. A bit irregular, but still had a pulse. Tried to um, see if he was awake. He wasn't. So his colour wasn't too bad. I said to Piercy, grab one of those oxygen cylinders, put that oxygen on for me. Piercy was really great. He was terrific. And I said, and there's some Anginine tablets in the in his glove box. Grab them. You'll see them. Show me the bottle shove one under his tongue sit with him see if you can wake him up he had um dad had rheumatic heart disease so um I, i kind of knew that you know what it might be i just left him and i went straight over to charlie and i looked at charlie and again couldn't even see the outline of his lips he wasn't even rousable
1: were you surprised to see it was charlie and not your husband because you had thought at first that it was your husband your dad was referring to
0: and the, and the ute was a little bit further inside the shed in the dark, you know, sort of in the shade. Yeah. So I, when I first went in and had a look and I went, oh, Jesus, it's Charlie. Kind of go into automatic. Do you know what I mean? You try not to. One thing I've learned over the years, you, even though you know all the people, don't let that feeling of um, what's the word?
1: The emotional attachment that you have to the person you're yeah. dealing with. Yeah. It's...
0: Yeah get on top of the otherwise you will not be able to do what you have to do you know and that's what i said to pierce he said i don't know if i can do this and i said you'll be right just don't look at their face for too long just just act like you don't even know them so
1: you're you're there with charlie and charlie's got no color in his lips he's obviously lost a huge amount of blood what do you see so charlie's lying on the back of the ute what what are you looking at
0: okay so he's lying on the back of the ute his head is at the right at the back and so his legs up against nearly at the back wall of the car of the Ute, right? Yeah. But beside him is a is a work boot and it has got oh god, it's got this the remains of a leg and the um oh. the splintered femur hanging out of the top of it and I went, oh my god, and that was just blood everywhere. But what dad had done, I had a look at where the wound was and and dad had actually put a piece of fencing wire around the top, right up in the top of his groin. So he'd actually put that on and probably saved his life. Oh. And he'd put it on so tight with a um, pair of pliers. So that would have actually saved his life.
1: What a sight. I can't, I'm, oh, what a sight to, what did you do? Did you get him straight over to the ambulance so you could get blood into him or, or were you unable to move him?
0: No, I just um, – he was unresponsive, so I said, okay, so I put oxygen on him. I just said to Piercy, get the other oxygen cylinder and put the oxygen on him for me. I said, I'm going to try and get a line in. So I pulled him up even further, got Piercy to help me, and we pulled him up right onto the tailgate so that his um, – it was his left arm. I could drag his left arm right over and hang it down, and I just gradually I had everything ready and I gradually i sat on the cement and I just gradually massaged his arm so I could try and get a vein up, and I got this tiny little vein in the back of his hand and I I don't think I've ever prayed so much in my whole life to try and get this in. No such thing as bone guns or anything like that. We never had anything flash. We just had cannulas, cannulas and tool decays. That was it, nothing else. Yeah. So I used a little tiny one that you'd use on an infant. I thought if I can get that in, at least I can get a bit of fluid into him and then once I get get him a bit more you know, sort of more fluid into him, I can try to get another vein. Yeah. So, I did that. So, I said, I got that in, but because it was so small, it wouldn't drip very fast. So, I got Piercy to climb up onto the roof of the ute and sit up there. And we had, remember, we didn't have anything fancy to squeeze and to squeeze the fluid in. Yeah. And I got Piercy to gently squeeze the haemocill in. It was in the big, thick plastic bottle but just just gently keep, I showed him the drip keep doing that for me, keep doing that for me, let me know when you're getting down a bit yeah. so then I checked his blood pressure and his blood pressure started to come, I could actually get a diastolic then after the first um, lot went in, we just kept on doing that and um, then he started to rally around a bit and was in pain so I couldn't get, I gave him a small order for pain, um, I didn't I couldn't get an order from anybody um, because there was no way out nobody had arrived, no telephone or, or um, two-way. Anyhow, um, Dad was rallying around. Piercy was keeping him okay. He was um, semi-conscious and he was talking. He was doing okay, no more chest pain, um, still on oxygen. Um, yeah, yeah, and then all of a sudden the troops started arriving and you could hear all the sirens coming down the highway. There was police, there was ambulances. <laughs> And so then they were both transferred back to, um, to Alpha and RFDS was writing, waiting there for them.
1: I've got to say, Leslie, I've done a lot of podcast interviews with some pretty harrowing <laughs> stories. You take the cake. I mean, at this point, you have taken the award of the most just, I mean, as I said, you couldn't make it up. It's just outrageous. Mm-hmm. And aren't they lucky to have had such a knowledgeable courageous person like you to be there. knowledgeable
0: oh, my goodness, me. <laughs> well I mean
1: you know how to hook up the lines and you know how to, you've you've got those basic vital information on how to keep a person alive and holy moly I, I mean what have you your dad has since unfortunately passed because this was some decades ago
0: no oh, yeah but he lived oh many many years after that wow. many many years after that. Yeah. Oh and also I was gonna tell you how that happened with them. They were using the post hole auger to put the dig the post holes for the new um laneway yeah. fence and he kicked a clod, Dad was on the tractor and Charlie was organizing the you know, the back end with the auger and he kicked a clod of dirt off from down the bottom of the auger and it hooked into the bottom of his jeans. Now he had stretched denim jeans on and it was actually, they said it was the elasticity of the material that kept, that just wouldn't let go and it just kept winding and winding and winding and it ended up taking half this his buttock as well. Oh, he's, how is Charlie now? Like is he? Oh, he's good. He grows loose and he's married. He's got a couple of kids. I've talked to him. He's a great fella. Yeah, yeah. He, he said, you saved my life and I said, oh, I don't know how I did it, mate. I said oh, I thought you were go- you were a goner. Oh, yeah.
1: Wow. Don't quite know what to say. <laughs> As I said, I think you've taken the cake. Pretty rare for me to be speechless, but I I'm just stunned with both of those stories are just outrageous. It's been so good talking to you, Leslie. Um, we were talking just before we did this interview about your retirement and how you're enjoying your garden and preserving and, and all those things that you've been wanting to do for so long. I'm really happy that you're there. And gosh, we we take our hat off to you. Honestly, from the Flying Doctor, we take our hat off to you. It, there are people alive there in Jericho and the whole district that owe their lives to you. And um, yeah, thank you for everything that you do.
0: That's That's okay, Alana. Thank you. But can I just add that really people, uh, uh, that's one thing that I've learned about living out here. You cannot live comfortably if you didn't know that RFDS would be available to get you to the care that you need. So many people owe their lives to RFDS. A lot of our family do, i for sure.
1: <laughs> I think we should go and have a cup of tea now. <laughs> <laughs> thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Oh, hey, Lana, it's Della from Adelaide Calling. I just wanted to say how much I enjoy your podcast. It's so fascinating to hear these stories, and it's not just the stories, it's the glimpse into life in the bush, which, as a city slicker, I really enjoy Keep up the good work. Really enjoy the pod. Before I head off, I just want to thank one last time our sponsor and major national partner, Izuzu Ute Australia. Izuzu is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates, and this podcast would not be possible without their support. To learn more, search Izuzu Ute online.